0: Matthew chapter 19, beginning at verse 16, Matthew writes, And behold, someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish, if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people, This is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Jesus is is just a few weeks away from Passover, from the the triumphal entry. We're we're almost there. He's finishing up this time of teaching his disciples and preparing them. I think the lesson that he gives them here uh, is, as you'll see, hopefully, is not simply a, a lesson about the rich being punished. It's not about class warfare. It's about the impossibility of salvation for anybody who is determined to earn it on their own. That's the, the heart of this. And I think Jesus is not only giving his disciples preparation for his own crucifixion, which is how salvation would come, but for what would happen after, who they should focus on, how they should view people after. After. And so it begins with a question. Someone comes to Jesus, teacher, rabbi. They say, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Uh, If I can just emphasize it for you, good thing is singular. What, What good thing must I do to have eternal life? This man has enough of a conscience to recognize that he doesn't have any kind of assurance. There's something missing. There's something else that he needs to do. The problem isn't that. The problem is that he's convinced that there's one good thing. And if he could just figure out that thing, everything would be right. So Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, says, Therefore you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I think that this young man, we find out he's a young man in the passage, I think that this young man is grossly underestimating the holiness of god god just requires that i get the one thing right i haven't found that thing yet but there's just there's just one thing and i think as well he grossly overestimates his own ability he's convinced that there is a good thing that god requires and that if he knew what it was he would be able to do it his problem is not ability his problem is ignorance He's not coming to Jesus for salvation. He's coming to Jesus for information. I just need to know what that thing is. But Jesus responds to him in an interesting way. Why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. Uh, Some translations, Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's only one who is good. The King James family uses that and perhaps some others as well there's a variant there as to whether it's why do you ask me about what is good or why do you call me good we don't need to get hung up on that the point Jesus is making is only God is good if if the original text says why do you call me good it's why do you look at me as a teacher and assume that I'm good when only God is good And if the original text is, why are you asking me about what is good? Then Jesus' intent is to say, why aren't you asking God? Only God is good. Either way, the problem is the man is not going to the right place. So Jesus tells him, if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. Jesus follows what Isaiah writes what the Lord said through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 8 to the law and to the testimony. And if they don't speak according to this, to this word, it is because they have no dawn, they have no light, they have no understanding. In his word, God has spoken clearly and unambiguously. It's plain. It's simple. There's no mystery. There's no need for complicated interpretations, Go to the word, keep the commandments. It's simple. The man responds to Jesus in verse 18. He said to him, which ones? Now, I don't know about you, but I I find that shocking for a Jew to say. Which, Which, what do you mean, which commandments? All of them. God didn't. Categorize his, his commandments as absolutely necessary and pretty important and for overachievers only. They're all necessary. They're all necessary. Psalm 119, 160 says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments is everlasting. Why does this man say this? Well, it's because of his time. The rabbis of his time were not concerned with what scripture said. They were concerned with what previous rabbis had said. Their debates and discussions and dialogues and arguments with one another were not based on a careful studying and pondering of the word of God, but on debating what previous rabbis had said. So, in a sense, they take the pure word of God and they begin adding their own ideas and diluting it. And as time went on, they diluted it more and more and more. Until not much remained of the original word of God. It's why they could say that uh, if a beggar comes to your house on the Sabbath, they, they went into great detail about what you can do and what you can't do. If a beggar comes to your house on the Sabbath and he reaches his arm into your doorway and he takes something out of your hand and takes it out, he's committed work, so he's violated the Sabbath. And if, if you take something in your hand and you reach out of the doorway and drop it into his hand, you've violated the Sabbath. But if the beggar reaches his hand into your doorway and you drop something into your house, or into his hand, you haven't worked because you didn't take something out of your house. And he's not to blame for the fact that now there's something in his hand when he takes his hand out. And that's okay. They actually argued about this. They actually argued about this. Instead of doing the right thing and just helping somebody, they wanted to go into the nuances of it. That's what this man was raised with. I am not an expert in historical rabbinical practices. I'm not. But I don't think that there was a single commandment where they said, this one doesn't need any discussion or any debate. Just do it. Just do what it says. They love to hear the sound of their own voices. Jesus, for his part, keeps calling the people back to scripture. And he says to the scribes and the Pharisees over and over again, have you not read? Did you never read? It is written. He calls them back to the scriptures and he holds them accountable to the scriptures. I love the grace of Jesus as, as he answers this man. And the man said to him, Which ones? And uh, uh, Jesus doesn't say, you're, you're kidding, right? He gives him some. Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I hope as I read those, as you see them in your Bible, that you recognize that something's happening here. First of all, there's ten commandments. Jesus is named six The first four of the commandments have to do with governing our worship of God. God begins by saying, I am the Lord your God who has taken you out of Egypt, delivered you out of Egypt. So, number one, you shall have no other gods. Number two, you don't create any graven graven images. Number three, you don't take my name in vain. Number four, you keep the Sabbath. Jesus doesn't mention those, doesn't get close to them. I don't know why. He doesn't. And then the fifth commandment is honor your father and mother. Jesus names these out of order. He begins with the sixth commandment about murder, and then the seventh about adultery, and the eighth about stealing, and the ninth about false witness, and then the fifth about honoring your father and mother. And he skips the tenth commandment, and he goes to Leviticus 19, 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's not mistaken. He's not confused. Jesus doesn't have a deficient memory This is deliberate. Jesus is fully human, fully man, but he's also fully God and he possesses omniscience. He didn't stop being God when he came to earth. He didn't set aside his deity. He emptied himself of the right to be worshipped. He emptied himself of his glory and he took on the form of a bond servant, but he never stopped being God. So he knows who this man is. He knows what he needs to hear. The man responds to these, verse 20. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, Mark and Luke add in their gospels. All these things I've kept from my youth. I have never violated these things. Of course, he just did. Because everybody lies and he's just lied when he said I've kept them all from my youth. We saw a video a couple of days ago. A guy opens up the back door, his daughter, little girl, about two, two and a half. She's sitting in a car seat. She's sitting in the back seat. He opens up the door, and she's holding a pink crayon, and the whole door is pink. She's holding the crayon, and he says, did you do that? And she says, no. (laughs) See, Linda and I, as parents of young kids, we, we categorize, categorize lies as lies and stupid lies. You get twice the punishment for a stupid lie. I mean, that's a stupid lie. But who taught this two-year-old to lie? Nobody. And watching the video, the dad is not angry. There's nothing in his voice, like you can't see his face, but there's nothing in him that would say she's in trouble. He just asked, did, did you do that? No. See, our sin nature begins acting in sin before we're even aware that there's such a thing. The time comes when we're aware that it's wrong, and we do it anyway, and our guilt only increases. All these things I have kept from my youth, what am I still lacking? So his conscience is, is deficient, his heart is deceptive, but he still knows there's a problem. What am I still lacking? My conscience is clear on the other things. And, and he actually said that with a straight face, apparently. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and, and is desperately sick. Who can know it? He doesn't even know his own heart. And so obviously he approves of his own life as you and I do. I meet the, I meet the, the requirements of my own conscience. And of course God uses my conscience as the standard for what's right and wrong. We can see the deadness of his heart. We can also see the impact of human religion and false doctrine. He'd been raised to believe that that this living dynamic relationship with Yahweh really comes down to a formalistic system. Jesus says in Matthew 5, You've heard that it was said, You shall not murder, but I say to you. And he goes on to explain the purpose of Of the law. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you. And what he's making reference to there is the fact that the the scribes and the Pharisees and the others had taken the clear statements of God's word and they had twisted it and reinterpreted it and shaded it so that you could violate those Ten Commandments in many ways without ever feeling any guilt. And praise God, and all glory to the Spirit of God, this man's conscience still pains him. For all of his successes, all these things I have kept, he's not at peace. Something is missing. But he still thinks it's a thing, a single thing. What am I still lacking? Jesus answers him in verse 21 What do you what do you really want? Do you want to be complete? If you wish to be complete, go sell your possessions and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Now, the Lord could have simply pointed at the man and said, you're covetous. Your heart is, is wrapped up in possessions. And he would have done probably what we would do, which is deny it or defend it or argue the point. And so Jesus takes a, a, a more subtle approach. He doesn't tell the man his sin. He shows the man his sin. Go and sell everything. Give it to the poor. You're not going to lose, by the way. You'll have treasure in heaven. And treasure in heaven is better than treasure on earth. Jesus has already said that to his disciples back in chapter 6, chapter 7. Store up your treasure in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. I mean, put your treasure in heaven and it's safe. When the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. What does he want? Well, he doesn't want to be complete. Jesus told him simply, if you wish to be complete, do this. You got anything else? Is there another answer to this? Now, Jesus is not saying that if we try hard, we can earn eternal life. He knows the man is not going to be able to do this. He knows that. He doesn't tell this man how to earn it. He wants this man to look him back in the eyes and say, I can't do that. He wants the man to say, I thought I was looking for information, but what I'm really looking for is salvation. I need to be saved from me. On the outside, he's just, he's just a young man. On the, <sighs> in, on the inside, he's like Charles Dickens' description of Ebenezer Scrooge. He's a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Jesus watches him walk away and then he turns to his disciples and he says, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. There's a popular mythology about this image. That there was a a gate in Jerusalem, such a small gate, that the only way to get a camel through it was to push them down to their knees and make them crawl through it. Uh, There's a couple problems with that. First of all, no such gate existed. At the time of Jesus, there were seven gates into the city and they were all huge. Second, who in their right mind would make a camel get down on its knees and shimmy through this narrow opening when 100 feet that way is a huge gate? Camels are not cooperative. Most of all, this came up, by the way, in about 1000 A.D., Most of all, the problem with it is it says if you really try hard, you can save yourself. Jesus' point is to say there's, it's just impossible. It's impossible. What's interesting is in Matthew and Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all, I'll tell this story. John doesn't. In Matthew and, and Mark, when Jesus says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, he uses the word for a sewing needle. Luke uses a different word. Luke was a doctor. He uses the word for a surgical needle. Either way, it's the largest animal they had in Israel and the smallest opening. That's what Jesus is getting to. See, everybody sins. Some of our sins are once or twice in a lifetime sins. Some sins are fairly infrequent. But for those who are apart from Christ, there are some sins that literally identify them. It's not just what they do, it's who they are. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 gives us a sampling of some of them. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Now notice how he phrases this. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He doesn't say people who commit sexual immorality. He says the sexually immoral. He doesn't say people who commit idolatry. He says idolaters. People who actually identify as their sin cannot enter the kingdom of God and apart from Christ we all identify with some sin it marks us to the point where just like this man the idea of giving that thing up is so terrifying we think that we will cease to exist that's what the unbelievers out there think the, the most obvious examples in our time are homosexuals and transgender people and things like that. But he doesn't say people who drink alcohol too much or too much alcohol. He says drunkards. At the mission and, and in, in the, the, the new work I've been doing at the jail, I meet people all the time who simply will not give up their identity, even though their identity is killing them. Now, this man realized how powerless he was. That's why he goes away grieving. He doesn't go, go away grieving because he agrees to sell everything, but it makes him sad because he owns so much. He goes away grieving because he's not willing. I couldn't find a single commentator who said he, he agreed and his sadness is over the loss of everything. The sadness is over the fact that he can't have what he wanted, which was assurance, He's unwilling to give up his sin because it's his identity. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and, and they said, then who can be saved? See, that comes from this assumption of their culture that the rich had been blessed by God. The powerful had been blessed by God. Those who were healthy had been blessed by God. If you're rich and powerful and healthy, you have it all. God has blessed you. And if if, if it's impossible for the rich who God has blessed to get into the kingdom of heaven, what, possib- what hope do the poor have? If it's impossible for the powerful who God has blessed to get into the, the kingdom of heaven, what hope do the weak have? If it's impossible for the healthy to get in when god has blessed them with with health then what hope do the sick have and jesus says well there's there's no hope actually with people this is impossible and with that he takes it beyond rich and poor this is not about class warfare this is not about a social gospel that says jesus didn't come to save sinners he came to convert society The problem with society is not individual sin. The problem with society is the rich and the powerful who are the oppressors. He's not saying that. He's saying there's no hope for any of us. Jeremiah writes in in Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord Yahweh, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing Is too difficult for you. Now Jeremiah did not write this to stick it on a bumper sticker. There's a context. And the context is said in the next verse. Ah, Lord Yahweh, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is impossible, nothing is too difficult for you who shows loving kindness to thousands but repays the iniquity of fathers into the bosom of their children after them. O great and mighty God, Yahweh of hosts is his name. Saving sinners is not too difficult for God. Neither is judging them. Jesus is not saying that with God we can earn salvation. He's saying, but with God, there is hope. Because with God, nothing is impossible. I'm living proof that with God nothing is impossible. He has saved me. If He can save me, he can save you. Thursday night at the mission, I, I met Jesus. The man sat down. I take names, and he says, "I'm Jesus Christ said, no, you're not. No, you're not. Yeah, I'm the reincarnated line of Judah. Well, okay, there's a, there's a hint that there's a problem right there. He's mentally ill. He's spiritually ill. And completely unable to hear the word. completely unable to hear the word. And when I used his name, which was on my sheet, he says, that's not my name, that's my government name. And I said, you mean it's the name your mama gave you? And that, that got through to him. See, whatever's going on in his life is so terrible and so great that he's decided that he's higher than anybody else and he's okay. And he knows he's not. And the message I try and bring, and I don't do it very well most of the time, I think, but the message I try and bring here or there is with God, all things are possible. And as long as somebody is breathing, we don't stop praying and we don't stop hoping. Only he knows the outcome of their life. Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine: the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us. He has not revealed to you and me who will and who won't be saved. But neither are we given the right to stand in judgment over their eternal state. Instead, we're to present them with the gospel. And we look at the fruits of their lives, not so that we can stand in judgment, so that, but so that we know what to say. So we know whether to say to somebody, I see Christ in you, but let me encourage you. Or to say, I don't see Christ into you." in you, this is the gospel. And for the people who shut us off, and there are many people who do, we just keep praying because they can't shut him out. We don't know what happened to this man later. He might have come to Christ. He might have been one of the 3,000 who believe on Pentecost. He might have been one of the 500 to whom the Lord appeared after his resurrection. We don't know. So as we bring this home, in the end, the issue is not what someone owns but what owns them I think every one of us in this room and and I'm including the children are richer than the average person in that time we have more possessions we have more money we have more stuff we have more opportunity we have more access to things than they ever had our children are richer in their possessions than most people at that time those riches are not an advantage. We are powerless to free ourselves. What our world does is normalize sin to say this is just the way things are. Nobody's perfect. I was born this way. I can't help it. And much of that is true. Let's see, here's the truth. The judgment of God is pure and perfect And unavoidable, we have only one hope, and that is that God will save us through his son. I was born and you were born with heaven out of reach, but we were not out of his reach. We were born with the inability to cleanse ourselves, but the son of God could take our sins and our guilt upon himself. We were born without the ability to live in righteousness, but the Son of God lived a perfectly righteous life. And we are credited with that righteousness through faith. Jesus makes a really interesting statement in John 17, in his high priestly prayer. He says to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having finished the work which you have given me to do. He'd not yet died, though. So in what way has he finished the work? He's lived a sinless life. He is now finished living a sinless life. Jesus did the work we can't do. And he didn't do that work so that he could turn around at the end and rub our noses in our weakness. He did that so that he could take our sins upon himself. And wrap us in his righteousness. We were born without the ability to earn God's pleasure, but we receive it by faith in Jesus Christ, and we receive the fullness of it by faith. With you and me, it's impossible. But with God, it's all possible. Father, we thank you for your love for us. I thank you that our salvation was not impossible for you. And I thank you, Lord, that you made it impossible for us so that you would receive all the glory, so that no one would be able to boast, so that no one would stand over others and say, I've been able to accomplish what you have not been able to accomplish. Every good thing that we have is a gift of your grace. Every, right, every aspect of our right standing with you is through faith in Jesus Christ, who did earn it, We would never come before you and say that we have lived the kind of life that we should have lived. Neither should we come before you and say there is no hope for us because in Jesus Christ there is hope. There is hope for the for the worst of sinners. And so I lift up this man at the jail that I met and I ask for his soul. I lift up family members, and friends who don't know you, some of whom have even broken off contact, and I ask for their soul. If it's your pleasure and will to to use us to speak truth to them, open the door for us and give us wisdom and give us the kindness of the Savior. But Lord, convince us also that there is no Savior like you. You're not looking for us to do your job, but to do our job, which begins with praying for them. And then simply telling them who Jesus is and what he has done. We thank you for this day. Uh, We lift up those who are not with us and ask for your blessing to be upon them, your peace to be upon them. And grant us your joy, Lord, as we go. And in your name I pray, amen.